Kia ora e te whanau and welcome to Tall Stories, Tales from the Built Environment, a podcast series by the New Zealand Institute of Building. Join us as we delve into personal stories about inspirational career journeys for people in design and construction, as you too build your own story. My name's Guy Marich. I'm an architect and an author of books sometimes, but also I'm mostly an academic nowadays, teaching at Victoria School of Architecture. But I've got with me uh, two talented young people, one of whom I used to teach many years ago, but now she teaches me everything. That's Brittany Irvine. And I've also got Matt Pattinson, who's a young cadet at LT McGuinness about whom I know nothing. So we're going to start off by asking Matt to introduce himself. Yeah, uh, yeah kia ora. Uh, called Matt Pattinson. Aho. Uh, I work for uh, LT McGuinness uh, as, a, as, a, as a project manager and I've recently moved into a design management uh, role. So um, carpentry trade by background, but yeah, been on a bit of a journey with LT McGuinness over the last uh, uh, 15 years. And Brittany, would you like to introduce yourself? Hello, I'm Brittany. I'm an architectural and graphic designer working at First Light Studio at the moment. I've been there for about five years now. Uh, kia ora, welcome to you both. Uh, good to have you along. I'd like to talk about, first of all, where, where you guys have come from, where, what your background is. And so, again, I'll start with you, uh, Matt, in terms of um, you said you started off with a career in carpentry and now you're in project management. Um, how did you get into carpentry and, and why did you switch to project management? Yeah, I guess my, my story probably starts even a little bit earlier. So um, my, my dad's an architect, so I've kind of always been around the industry and around design and construction. And uh, I remember as, as a kid, you know, dad would get us involved. Um, he's, he's a pretty practical man as well. So if he got a new... Um, New project, he'd go and, and survey the you know survey the new plot of land that um that, that he that he was doing, and he'd get us kids involved. And so at a young age, I was out on the dumpy level, and you know working out my back sites and my datums, and then and then would go back home and build a uh, a model of the topography, and it was a lot of fun. Really, it was uh, Dad's a great teacher. He was actually a high school teacher for ten years as well. So that's sort of um, so I've always been around the industry and construction and, and really enjoyed it and try to get my kids involved now as well, you know. But you didn't get into architecture, although your father was an architect? Yeah, yeah, so dad, dad's a practising architect. Um, for, it wasn't quite the right fit for me, I don't know why at the time, but um, yeah, it was, uh, wasn't wasn't for me. But um, fast forward a few, a few years, I was at college, a 15-year-old, and... Um, to be honest, I was probably getting in a little bit of trouble at school. I, I enjoyed, you know, um, maths and sciences and I uh, loved running around PE and the like. And so, and, you know, enjoyed all the things that probably would be a good fit for, for the industry. But, um, uh, yeah, got into a bit of trouble at school. And, good man. Yeah. yeah. Thoroughly proved. Yeah. Nothing, so, nothing like getting into trouble at school. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, my, my parents actually got a bit concerned at one point And so they, they, were, they were a bit worried about the direction I was heading in. And so... They said actually, what would be really grounding for Matt is to go into a trade. I think that's what we what, what he needs to do. So, at quite a young age, actually, at sixteen, um, I signed up for a building apprenticeship, sort of organised by my dad. He was working for a, uh, he was designing a house for a builder at the time, and yeah, so at the tender age of sixteen, I uh, started a building apprenticeship. 
and carpentry and, and that sort of became my classroom and these, these gruff builders became my teachers and, and I really enjoyed it actually. Yeah, great. What about you, Brett? Yeah, when I was reflecting on what made me pick this pathway, I sort of, I don't have any early memories on a construction site or anything like that, but the sort of core thing that I remember as a kid was I would often create imaginary spaces. So I was very much make a little house under the deck or in the tree or under the dining room table. I was very much imaginative in trying to, in trying to create things. And I also, yeah, loved Lego, really classic. Um, and then at high school, I really enjoyed design, but also the sciences. So I was sort of caught between do I want to be an engineer, but I really enjoy creative things, and it took me quite a while to decide, but I think at my heart, I sort of knew that I did want to do architecture, and I sort of approached it as I'll do the first year, see how it feels, see if it, it gels with me, because um, I don't really know a lot about it at all, but it did, it really clicked, and I've sort of enjoyed it since then, I think it's, it's sort of become a, a passion that I maybe didn't expect it to be. But, yeah. Because you've also got another string to your bow, which is that you've recently been awarded uh, the Hatchet Young Emerging Designer of the Year Prize at the PANS Awards for your design of, of the book Medium, um, which shows that you're a really good graphic designer as well as a really good architect. So how did you manage to uh, figure out what you wanted to do? What, was, what, what dragged you more towards architecture than towards graphic design? I feel like an important part of architecture is being able to communicate your ideas really clearly because quite often you can have a concept that might be a little bit abstract or you need to communicate something to the client because they're they're the, the, the end user, they're also you know paying for a design but communicating ideas is really important. So I think I enjoy that architecture has that thread within it and yeah it's, it's an important part yeah communicating to clients but also to builders right I think communicating how something goes together to council all the all that there's so much information and yeah an important part of that is other people being able to understand it and yeah the book design thing I I guess it's just another aspect of design that I really enjoy. So architecture is one part of design, graphic design, book design, web design is, is another part of design. So I'd also love to do product design or um, all, the, all those sorts of different things. Yeah. Cool. And now when you made your leap from architecture school into, into your career, you're currently working with First Light Studio um, and I'm sure they hope that you'll be there for many years ahead what what are some of the projects that you worked on on site where how did you know that that changed from everything being purely paper-based to real life projects um i think i remember the, the first project that got built in real life i was always really surprised that it looked exactly how it did in the computer model or in the drawings it was sort of yeah that was always that was quite a moment really um, but you learn a lot on site, I think, seeing things in real life or how things go together. You, you sort of, you have an understanding of all these components and how they're assembled, but then seeing 
you know someone else do it you you have a huge respect for builders and and what they do and yeah understanding their day-to-day I think how it helps you to be a better designer um yeah and have better outcomes together yeah great okay Matt tell me about your your launch from the um from being on the tools and to being into project management what what uh, what propelled you away from the hard life of hammering to a um Still wearing steel cap boots, I see, but <laughs> Proudly, uh, yeah. but running things, you know, in theory on, on a on a project. Yeah, it's, that's a very good question, actually. Um, I think at, at McGuinness is there is a, a natural progression that's that's encouraged, uh, but for me, I, I found myself on a few um, heritage strengthening projects. That's something that I've, I have a really keen interest in, and um, and have have done a bit of research on as well. And they are quite, um, they're very rewarding projects, but they're very challenging projects as well. And it requires a, a bit of bit of everything. And, uh, you know, if you're earthquake strengthening a, a church like St. Mary of the Angels or St. John's in the City. And so you kind of have to have a, um, a, be a bit of a jack of all trades. And so you're doing a bit of project management, you're doing a bit of site management, you're putting your tool belt on as well. So I found myself in a space where, um, you know, you, you're doing a bit of everything really, and then sort of from there, found actually the um, started to identify some areas that I really in, enjoyed and, and got a lot of you know a uh, real buzz from, and that included project management, but uh, a lot of design management as well. So I feel like you know we we don't really uh, focus too much on on even the titles at, at McGuinness. It's very fluid, and we, we kind of go where the where um, where the wind takes us in a way, and wherever there's a need. Uh, so even now, I probably wouldn't. You know, call myself a project manager. It's um, I feel like I'm in some ways I'm all of the above. Um, so, you're, so you're just somebody at LT beginners. Yeah, yeah. I'll yeah. put you in touch with somebody. Yeah, somebody. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's um, yeah. I've I've always enjoyed being on site. Um, been a bit of a natural organizer as well in the family. If there's ever a, a holiday that you know I was always the one you know booking the itinerary and coming out with plans and sharing it with the family and. I was flatting. I was always the guy, kind of making sure the bills were paid on time, and um, and and that. So, I think you know, fi- just finding a natural fit for for your personality and and what works for you, and where you you know where you get energy from. So, um, yeah. Well, so it's just interesting that that an employer um, with a good reputation like Eldie McGuinness have got that very flexible attitude. They're not pigeonholing people or pigeonholing careers. So they're allowing you all to. To express your own desire to work on the project in different yeah. ways. Yeah, I think it's really important to work to strengths, isn't it? And and find out, uh, you know, where where the sort of sweet spot is for different people and and where people's interests are. And if you can align what someone's really passionate about with the, with what the business needs as well, then you can, you can naturally just go there. But you also in our industry, we need to be agile and we need to be, um, you know, one project you you, you might be. Um, you might be project managing, and the next next you might be more in a, more of a support role. It's just kind of also wherever the wherever wherever the need is as well, and um, so I think it's quite important as well. Yeah. Now, have you seen um, technology have much of an effect in your on your projects as your career has progressed along? I presume things used to be more paper based. And yeah, I was reflecting on this actually. Um, yeah, there's there's been there's been a lot of a lot of changes. I think you know, it's waiting at, at um, my dad's office after school, and he'd be there at the, the drafting table, and 
I'm there causing havoc on the fax machine, and you know, uh, and so definitely I've seen I've seen a lot change in in terms of technology, point cloud scanning, and um, you know, just a lot of technology. But I guess to flip that question on the head, one thing I reflected on is that one thing that I'm really interested in actually is as technology advances, uh, how it highlights how unique and special and how amazing the human mind is and our cognitive abilities and getting together in terms of human interaction to solve problems and design solutions and you know, there's like you know I, I, I get talking about BIM I get quite passionate about it but in the sense that BIM is a tool to me it's a neutral tool could be you know you could maybe you can produce a great design maybe you can produce a bad design really quickly now with BIM actually and so but uh, good design makes for good design um, and it's the same in construction as well and one thing I get quite sort of passionate is about is you see a few younger players and you know, if you take even just forms of communication as an example, is uh, there can be a tendency for younger players to overly rely on digital forms of communication and not get in front of another person and have a face-to-face -face conversation like we are now. And uh, I think that's really important in problem solving and design is to, yeah, technology is great and it's advancing, uh, but it's also highlighting how amazing uh, people are and, and how important that, that sort of collaborative process is. Can you take me, take us, through a little bit more about how you work with the BIM model, who builds the BIM model, who takes ownership of it, does that ownership pass over to the to the um, the contractor, or how how is, how is BIM used within LT McGuinness? Yeah, so you know, if, if if I can use just hone that answer a little bit down to say the services is, is a good is a good example for us because you know no one likes clashes on site no one likes um having to redo works and the designs are getting trickier and trickier in terms of like spatial constraints and things like that and so a big push for us at the moment is using bim as a as a 3d coordination collaboration tool and so we get um subbies together and we we, we collaborate heavily in bim uh, actually even if it's just producing 2d shop drawings that's the process now that, that, we're, that we're that we're using it for uh, and it's something that we, uh, we have a big focus on at the moment. Um, but the, the other thing I, I, I think as well is that you want to kind of want to avoid the any kind of novelty aspect and make sure, you know, in a, in a building site, things need to be, there's an element of practicality about this too. It needs to be, um, needs to work. It needs to be cost efficient. It needs to, um, you know, it needs to be usable. And so... Uh, we're, we're working hard to make sure that whatever we do implement is, you know, meets those needs as well. Yeah. What about you, Brittany? In terms of your relationship to um, to, to the digital world, you're you're pretty much a digital native. But uh, do you use BIM in, in your office practice? Uh, yeah, I guess we're sort of trying to develop quite an interlinked process. So lines on the page aren't just lines; they're also linked to to a model or to an element. Um, and so we do that and we can produce a, a BIM model. This is for residential projects, by the way, um, uh, that can go to the builder on site. And I think just even just seeing the building in 3D just helps people to understand what you're trying to achieve. Yeah, if you can cut a section through a 3D model, I think it just helps people to, un to understand the space and then you're all on the same page with, with the vision. And... Yeah, there's definitely room to grow there as well. If your revisions can go for your BIM model at a residential scale, I think that can be very helpful. Because uh, even I was when I was sort of reflecting on the technology thing, um, 
yeah, coming from university, I remember going into practice and you learn about all these different systems and these new technologies and there's so much optimism and you're, you're looking at new ideas and then I found, particularly in the residential sector, is the cost to implement a lot of these systems is almost too great because the scale's too small, especially in New Zealand. So when you're looking at things like off-site construction or wanting to use CLT or just use different types of materials, we don't quite have the scale yet for those those smaller buildings for it to be cost-effective. So, so it's still that maybe your frames are, stick, are built off-site, but you're, there's still not a lot of optimization in that process but I think that's probably different and bigger scale stuff but remember that was something I was always quite um surprised by that was still yeah I don't know if that will change but um but that was that was quite interesting but yeah we use we have a VR um system in the office which we find quite helpful for some clients because we get used to being able to read plans and sections and 2d drawings but a lot of clients can't necessarily translate that into 3D space or what, what the final outcome might be. So, if, yeah, again, about communication, VR can be a very helpful tool for that, I think. You mentioned that you issue the, the, the BIM model sometimes to the builders. Um, how, do you, how do you issue the BIM model to the builder and what do they do with it? And, and who then has control over it? That's... That's, I think that's a problem that, that we're facing now, but also in the future. Mm. Um, you know, whoever, you know, knowledge is power, and so whoever, whoever owns the, the BIM model has got control, whereas the people working from it need to be able to access it. And sometimes, you know, do you lock everything so that they can't change anything? Tell me about it. In this context, we're using BIMX, which you export from Archicad. So it's a, it ends up being a static model, so the builder can't change anything. It's a, yeah, a static output that they can turn around and the drawings are all linked to the, to the model. Um, so there's no, they can't move anything or change anything, I guess. In our context, the architect's usually administering the contract as well, so you're sort of in charge of all that. How does that work in with, with your experience, Matt? Do you get architects issuing you with a... A model you can't change and is that is that a good thing or is, is that something of an irritation well what a big push for us at the moment is to create a construction BEP that basically it says that at a, at a point in time um, then we we control the BIM space um, and um, that's becoming we try and encourage that more as, as, as a clear-cut um, thing but then it's things like well okay well how do you manage the structural elements that the structural steel guy's not going to um, take over, how, you know, concrete modelling and so on. So, yeah, I think it's, it's very much an evolving space. At, at the moment, it depends on what resource you have in the company and are you outsourcing, are you, you know, are you working in-house and, you know, what's the client brief, how how involved is, is, is the architect. And um, so it's probably not really like a single answer to that, that, that sort of question. It's... Um, but I think for us, it's, it's um, you know, the consultants are using it actually to produce designs and, and we're producing it to, to build buildings. And so the output's very, very different. Uh, and so for us, once it gets to a point where, um, you know, we can communicate the design to, to the subcontractors and get it built, then there's not a lot of room for kind of novelty after that, really. 
This episode is proudly sponsored by Jib Plasterboard, your local plasterboard manufacturer. Jib Plasterboard offers a wide range of training programs and technical help for lining installation, fire resistance performance, noise control, wet area systems, and rigid air barrier solutions. Please call the Jib Helpline team on 0800 100 442 for technical support or register for a training session at jib.co.nz slash training and events. Um, I want to change tack just a little bit and ask you about um, diversity and inclusion in the construction industry. Brittany, can I start off with you uh, in terms of how, how you feel that, that uh, diversity um, is handled in the construction industry and the architectural industry and do you think it's changed over the years or is it is it problematic or is it not a problem at all? Yeah, I, when I, I first reflected on this question and I thought about leaders in the space so I think when I was early university there wasn't in terms of well-known architects people you looked up to when you first started there I feel like there wasn't a lot of talk about that in, in architectural history or in um, what was happening in the space but I think over the last 10 years that's changed quite a bit and there is more diversity across the board and in, in the industry or in, in the broader industry globally I guess yeah in terms of my experience I haven't had any struggles per se I was gonna say I've had most a positive experience in the industry that's good that's yeah. well let's hope that continues yeah, from a personal standpoint, yeah. Matt, what about yourself? I've definitely seen an increase in, in women in construction over the last uh, well, 20 years now. And I think when I first started, uh, first five or 10 years, I, I, I worked with very few women. Uh, we're, we're talking coal-faced construction here, less design and you know consultancies and that. But um, yeah, I can probably count on one hand how many women I worked with in the first five to ten years but over the last ten years it's been very positive it's, uh, to see actually there's there is I'm sure there's a long way to go but there is definitely a lot more uh, women and I think that's really uh, been it's really beneficial and really positive and I'm a, I'm, I'm a big advocate for for construction being a more egalitarian environment something I'm very passionate about and um, I hope that if any of my three daughters want to get into construction that I can hand on heart encourage them that it's a great career choice for them and they're going to have lots of opportunity and um, well, one thing I have been thinking about in this, in this, in this space a lot is you know we, we talk about um, gender around um, you know income equality and but to me equity is a big word that needs to be explored as well about um, how those who are you know more, more privileged or have less obstacles to to, to get through you know, ie uh, people like me, you know, men <laughs> in the industry, uh, um, how we can actually encourage and make space and um, make way as well for, for women in the industry. And uh, just reading an interesting article um, this week, a, a lady called Claudia Golden, she's a, a professor at um, Harvard in economics, and she just won the Nobel Prize looking at income uh, inequality. And it's really worth a Google if you're interested in that. But one of the main things that she highlighted in, in her research was around that a big part of income inequality between men and women and in, in, um, in the industries that she looked at 
was really around career interruptions from from family life and, and starting starting a family and and that's obviously a lot more taxing for women than it is for, for men and so how as companies and how as individuals and how as men in the industry can we really encourage and and increase the equity uh, you know um, for for women um, yeah that's um, it's quite relevant actually because even now within McGuinness there's um, um, there's someone who I'm working really closely with and, and she's about to go on, uh, on maternity leave for a while and we're in similar roles and I'm thinking well all of a sudden becomes quite relevant you know when she has uh, six months off or 12 months off then um, how can I encourage her when, when she's back to um, you know just to, to to keep keep going in her career and keep, keep progressing in that way and not, not see having children as a disadvantage at all so yeah mm-hmm. One other thing I think to know is I mean it's a podcast so I'm a Pakeha woman um, but the I don't think the industry reflects the ethnicity of our country very well so particularly in architecture and design we're designing for yeah on the whole across lots of different projects a lot of different people but the the, ref, the reflection of the those designers I don't think necessarily always reflects the people who you are designing for um, do you notice that in your in your teaching guy that your are your classes quite diverse and maybe it just it takes time for that to filter into industry? I think it does take time. I, I was up in Auckland the other week, uh, just sitting in on a tutorial up there, and the Auckland school is massively more immigrant driven than the Wellington school, um, so it was noticeable of the group that I was in. There was. Um, 17 out of 18 of the students were from immigrant families. So only one, what we would call a Pākehā, there. Um, in Wellington, we tend to have a much narrower focus. Um, and that's something that, that Victoria's really keen to change, is to have a lot more um, people from different ethnicities, and especially Māori and Pacifica students coming along. But you can't just magic them up out of thin air. They have to want to come they have to enrol and, and, and get through. So it's you know it is a it's a problem for all the schools, I think. Yeah, but it's you know it's an important thing that we all need to concentrate on. Mm. Changing tack again, I'm interested in your advice on what you would give to somebody that's starting out in the business. So, Brittany, even though you seem young, and uh, you're but you're actually getting some experience behind you. You're you're going to be going for registration in the next year or so you you've probably built more houses now than I have what's your advice to somebody that's starting out I think in in terms of starting out in architecture my first thing I thought was find a practice that aligns to your architectural values I mean that that might not happen in your first job it might not happen in, in your second job but I think in terms of being excited about what you're producing and feeling like you're making a difference, finding a, a firm that, yeah, resonates with you, uh, I think is, is quite important for feeling, yeah, like you're making a difference and, and it's more than just a building sometimes. So it's more than just the architecture, it's the, the values of the practice is important, is that what you're saying? Yeah, I think. I mean, for me, I I really enjoy where I work, but also because of the ethos of the company. So they care about sustainability, They the way the directors interact with the clients, and the clients end up becoming their friends. Those relationships are really important. 
then trying to build smaller, smarter, cleverer, which I really agree with too. Oh, one other thing to note earlier, I think, when we were talking about how you got started in the industry, my first job came about, my first sort of couple of connections to the industry was taking up summer scholarships through Victoria University. I mean, one time I was way too deep into doing my assignment and Guy comes along and says, are you going to apply for this tomorrow? And I was, I wasn't even thinking about it, but I ended up doing it and it basically got me my job where I am now. So if you can get some experience in the industry, maybe while you're studying, I think does sort of help. And one other thing I was thinking was maintain your hobbies as well outside of just architecture because it makes you a more well-rounded person and I think that means you can connect with others or connect with your clients quite well because they also come from lots of different backgrounds and enjoy different things and when you can find common ground I think that also makes for successful outcomes. I think it's a, it's a really good point you need to have interests outside the industry and um, well, unfortunately I don't but uh, I think for most people it's, it's a really important thing to do to give them a, a wider you know, breadth of experience and and a, you know better better social life as well. Oh, um, Matt, what about you in terms of advice for any young people out there that are thinking of? What, would you say go on the tools, or would you say avoid the tools, go on on the spreadsheets first of all, or something else? Yeah, probably not so much directional advice, but uh, yeah, a couple of things I've I've thought about. I think everyone wants to make their mark on the world when, when you're young and you know, um, you're very passionate about your cause and and you want to be influential and, and grow in responsibility. I think when you first start out though, the main thing that I would I would say is like experience takes a bit of time and that's something that you'll grow. And one of the worst things that someone can do for you actually is to um, you know, propel you before you're quite quite ready. Um, and but one thing from day one that you that you, you can um, you can focus on and, and, and not have to wait patiently for us to as, have a solid work ethic and sound like a real builder now, but I think there's a lot to be said for having a solid work ethic and that will really take you places. And I was reflecting on this. I take real inspiration from my granddad, actually, or, or Bubba, as we called him. He arrived in New Zealand as a, as a refugee after World War Two to um, escape his, his country in, in the Balkans. And he arrived in New Zealand with the shirt on his back and not much else. And, and he, he took a job up in, a, in a glass factory and that was him for decades. And he just, just grafted, just worked hard. And when he passed away, he had no debt and he had things to leave to his family. And, and I, I take real inspiration from that, that a lot to be said, because so, you, know, you, you do get some sort of young upstarts and they're really keen and not a lot of substance sometimes. And, you know, but, but hey, be punctual, turn up to meetings prepared. Uh, be the first to arrive. Don't turn up Monday glazy-eyed. You know, um, make sure that you're that you're there and you're present. So I think it's definitely one thing that I'd, I'd highlight. And and I guess the other thing I'd say is more of an encouragement if you're considering a career in construction that it it genuinely is a legitimate career path. And I don't think I heard that enough. Uh, you know, as a school student, for example, and whether you're going into a trade or into design or architecture, engineering, whatever it is, that construction is a very rewarding industry and so if you are considering it um know that it's a legitimate career path that um that you can take you know and I, had, I had my own doubts at, at, at different points but um early on I remember dad gave me a magazine North, I think it was a North and South magazine I've still got it somewhere and on the front cover there was a builder four by two on his shoulder 
um, is, you know, has, has said something like, 30 years old, owns a home in Wanaka, earning six figures, no student debt. Not a bad, <laughs> not a bad career path, is it? You know, and, and, uh, big, yeah. and actually that was one of the turning points for me in, in, in making in making that move. So I just want to encourage people, it's not a dud career, it's a, it's a great industry to be involved with, and if you are considering it, just, just jump in with both feet and go for it. Yeah, great, great words of wisdom there. Mm. Thoroughly agree. Matt, talk to me about your family life. How have you managed to balance your work life with your incredibly busy home life yeah this is way around yeah this is this is a biggie for me if i'm honest so i i have um five children and they're uh, age 10 and under and um you know so i i do think about this a a lot um construction can be quite a demanding industry so i feel like uh, yeah i've learned a couple of things along the way i'd love love to share really and um i think first first thing i'd say is if you um you know for me and my wife you know i think it's really good to be um a a great team and and work together so and don't move don't move faster or quicker than than a collective team together so um, if there's a if there's a season where you're going to be busy make sure that everyone sort of understands that and the kids understand that as well um i think i'd I'd encourage people if, if you're starting out in a career and maybe you want to start a family but you haven't yet um I'd say go hard, go early. Make sure you you know you work hard with your study now because um, you know it, it, you do become a little bit more time poor when you you know um, for things like study and over time when when the family arrives and so. Um, but the other thing I'd say is really it's really not it's not bad for your kids to see you work hard and achieve goals as well. The kids are very resilient and actually they're quite proud of their parents and you know when they see um, you know when they see. Um, you know, dad build a building. I mean, my kids, for example, they every job I've been involved with, they're, they're convinced that I single-handedly built that building, you know, mm-hmm. and um, that's something I, try, you know, it's an embellishment I kind of, you know, at least with your kids, I'm quite proud of. So um, I think that's really good. But the last thing I'd say is when work gets really busy and intense, you, you, your family life isn't, you don't take a back seat with that. You don't, you don't step back from that. You actually increase your, the intensity and the intentionality with your family. And so, for me, what this might look like is, hey, kids, you know, this project's going to be done in three or four weeks' time. Dad's going to be quite busy. Might be some overtime. Um, but, hey, look, I'm going to pick you up from school two days next week and we're going to have a, a movie night or, you know, at the end of it, we've got a little holiday book. So it's going to be a little bit busy, but that's okay. And, um, and you know, um, that, that, that'll be fine. And and also getting your kids to share in the, in the rewards from your mahi. So I remember one job I said, working a lot of overtime, and they the, brought the kids along with that and they understood why and they said hey look at the end of it we're going to buy a, a, a giant new trampoline it's going to be a massive trampoline and it was funny because they almost they couldn't wait to send me to off to work you know because they knew if dad finished a job and they'd get a big trampoline out of it and um and to this day we kind of have a lot of fun on that so i think um yeah i think we, we talk a lot about work, work-life balance at the moment but yeah, I don't think that means, I don't think that's um, mutually exclusive with hard work and, 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 and doing, you know, you know, putting in the hours and, and, and at least you could see that, so. Fantastic answer. Yeah. Brittany, do you want to talk about your work-life balance? Well, I have no children and, I, and I'm still flatting at the moment, so quite a different life situation. Um, and I guess my... The things that I would have, had, would have to balance was when, for example, working on Medium, the book with Guy, that I designed. So I was working full-time and then in my spare time also doing this book design as well. So 
mm, trying to find time to take on these extra projects and and work hard and and do them well but I tried not to let that be a detriment to my day-to-day job as well taking on both those things can be quite hard but I think just trying to find time amongst all that to still yeah make quality time with with the people you love as well finding a happy medium yeah (laughs) okay I might just wrap this up now and and say uh, a big thank you to you both Matt Pattinson, Brittany Irvine, you've been fantastic to have here on the bench today from the Tall Stories Secret Underground Vault, and we will um, follow your future careers with interest. Thank you both. Thanks for listening to Tall Stories, Tales from the Built Environment a podcast series by the New Zealand Institute of Building.